Okay, uh, we're going to turn to the text now, and of course, I, by now you know it's Psalm 19. I'm going to ask a favor. i like three volunteers to look at their own text in their Bible, but the rest of you to look at the monitor. Uh, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word, because some of the words are going to be different, and that's what makes it so exciting about uh, Psalm 19. And... Uh, I'm going to be reading from the NASB, New American Standard Version. Can I have three volunteers, please, uh, to read afterwards, uh, make out some points? What, what translation do you have? NASB also? Oh, okay. Well, then I need a different translation. What do you have? ESV. Anyone have NIV? Anyone have King James? And anyone have CSB? ESV, then rest of your ESV. I can have whatever you want. Wow. Okay. How about, how about we have uh, NLT? All right. So you two will tell us some points here after, afterwards. But the rest of us, can we, well, all of us stand for the reading of God's word, please. Thank you. And it would help that I get uh, in the very place that I'm calling to read. Okay, Psalm 19 in reading. And it's the works in the Word of God for the choir director, a Psalm of David. Some theologians feel that uh, his choice of words for choir director, he's referring to God. I don't. I think he's referring to Asaph or some other, uh, some other choir director. He's king after all, and he loves music. And I think he wrote this was inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit, but inspired by man to write this and his own life. He had many hardships, and when he was running from Saul, he hid in caves and out in fields, and he looked up at the night sky and saw God's handiwork and tears of, tears of frustration as he was being chased by Saul, and his life was uh, going to be forfeited. He knelt and he prayed. And I think this comes out in David here now. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, no, nor are their words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, can we all read the remaining verses, 7 through 14, together? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. 
They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You may be seated. I, uh, I, I had uh, David pass this out. I want us to get a hope of, uh, I love quotes. I, sorrowfully, I remember quotes better than I do scripture. I don't know why. But the great Puritan Thomas Watson said, the more that heaven is in us, the less earth will contend us. That's the problem with modern man today. You've heard me say this in your presence before. I'm going to say it again. Repetition reinforces, repetition reinforces. But before the age of reason, quote, unquote, reason, the Renaissance that started in France in the 1600s. Before the age of reason, it was impossible not to believe in God. We're going to turn to some scripture that shows people bowing down before idols. They understood, you see, they understood there was a greater mind, a greater force, a greater thing out there. When they saw the mountains, they looked across the expanse of an ocean, uh, they saw the thunder and the lightning, floods, uh, uh, their children die of sickness, uh, uh, whole cities perishing, and the cities burned by, by uh, acts of God, by fire. They understood, and so they made idols. They didn't believe in the true God, but they believed in a God. That's the point. They believed in something, you see. So before the Renaissance, the age of reason, it was impossible not to believe in God. Everybody believed in God. Then during the age of reason, of course, 1600 through 1700s, for the first time, for the first time it was possible not to believe in God. For the first time. This is the age of Copernicus, mathematicians, basic astronomy, Newton's law, they were finding out things. Of course, Newton was comparing it and making science subject to the Bible, while others said, the Bible, let's shelve it for now. Let the age of man, the age of reason, man writ large, increase. It was possible not to believe in God. Then, of course, we come to all the technological marvels of today. I used to sit, uh, I, 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 was, I lived before the Internet, you know. Uh, there was no cell phones when, in my 20s. I, I, uh, I, I thought it was so cool. The, the brand new thing that I had, and, th and this came out when I was in the Air Force. Uh, you know, I just a, one scraper at the time. And I, I, I was a cool cat, man. I, I got, for the first time, a walking radio, a transistor radio. I could put it in my pocket with my earbuds on, wear my bell bottoms, and uh, go into town, you know. Was I cool? Wow. Transistor radio. And I used to, then, in, when I went to Baptist Bible College, 
back in 1972 through 76, I used to sit there and flick through Albert Edersheim or Benson or Wiest. I would buy all these books. I still have them. I've donated some to my church and whatnot. Uh, uh, ISBE, International uh, 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 Encyclopedia of the Bible. And now I just take my phone and look it up. I mean, they used to read by candlelight and research the Greek and the Hebrew in order to bring you a message. And today I stand with all this here. It's marvelous. But you see, the world does not look up any longer. It looks forward and down. Rarely does it look up. And as A.W. Tozer said, we've lost the appreciation of the amazement of God's creation. Well, here David is not making that mistake, you see. So, I passed out some uh, quotes. I'd like to read them. Uh, the eagle that flies in the air doesn't fear the bite of the snake. Biblical holiness has to do with human wholeness. We'll skip Albert McHugh. Uh, let's go down to C.K. Chesterton. He's one of my very favorite writers. And you can research him. He lived back in the 30s, I believe. But it, it, he says, It has been often said very truly that religion is the thing that makes the ordinary man feel extraordinary. And it's an equally important truth that religion is the thing that makes extraordinary man feel ordinary. We need extraordinary men today to feel ordinary. Jeff Bezos just put his toe into the edge of space and came back. And everybody's wowing him, okay? He ought to be thankful that there's an earth created by God that's maintained and upheld, that he had an earth, a landing pad to come back to. This extraordinary man. But I don't think he gives credit to God for that. Humility, he says, is the mother of giants. One sees great things from the valley. Only small things from the peaks. Isn't that the truth? Wow. And then C.S. Lewis, that master of literary writing. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Warren Wiersbe came out to Northfield Baptist Church in 1982, I think. I liked Warren Wiersbe, his B-series, and I went out and listened to him. As I told you, I find it easy, not easy, but less difficult to remember quotes than I do scripture, unfortunately. And he said this on that last take that he had there about looking forward. A fugitive is running from home. And a wanderer is, he's far from home. A vagabond, he, he, he has no home. But a pilgrim is heading for home. That's what we need to be in this present world. We're not vagabonds, we're not wanderers, and we're not fugitives. Well, maybe some of you are, I don't know. 
but we are pilgrims. All right. Uh, can I get a, David, would you hand, hand these out, please? And I can use another uh, person for the other ones. Thank you. And do with them what you want. You know. But let's uh, turn to scripture. All right, so uh, who do we have? We had an ESV volunteer and an LT volunteer. Where's the ESV volunteer? You. Huh? I got you. All right, so I'm going to read along here, and uh, you can look at your own translations now. I'm going to read along here, and I want you to stop me, uh, Sean, when the word is different, okay? So, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Proclaim, okay. It's important that telling be magnified. The NASB is a very accurate word-for-word -word translation. Very accurate. It sometimes seems clunky. You know, it, it's not as smooth as others. But if you want a true, exact, or as exact, you can make it. NASB is the book. Matter of fact, uh, Brent and I were going over uh, uh, earlier edition of NASB, and it was different. It says it, it said uh, something to the effect tells. But the heavens are telling. Now, what does that word telling prescribe to you? What does it describe? All right, and what else? The heavens are telling the glory of God. What does yours say, ESV? Verse 1, first line. Okay. So the heavens are what? What are they doing when they declare, when they're telling? What are they? Mute or are they? Pardon? Okay, well, in poet, in poism, it is speaking. It is speaking. But it says in verse 3, their voice is not heard. Well, that's interesting. So, the heavens are telling the glory of God. And telling, I'm not a good uh, English major, so, so some of you people who are can correct me. But you've got proclaims, proclaiming or proclaim? Proclaim, proclaim and you've got declares. Okay. They both mean the same thing, but telling is a little bit more exact because it's a continuous witness of the glory of God. In other words, the heavens are constantly bubbling like a brook, is what it means in the Hebrew. A brook that constantly bubbles, that makes a sound. The heavens are constantly telling of the glory of God. Now that's interesting. And their expanse is declaring the works of his hand. What do you have, Sean, declaring? Hmm, I like that. Displaying his craftsmanship. And what do you have, uh, David? Proclaims his handiwork. All right, declaring, constantly showing. You see... It's not as if God made the heavens and the earth and then is silent and man can take it or leave it. What this does, though, it does two things. It draws man, as I said in that story, where 
people before the Renaissance, the age of reason, before that time, man worshipped something. And God then, therefore, is constantly telling man of himself through the heavens. But let's read a little bit more. Day to day pours, day to day pour, pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, uh, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Had God not sprinkled the night with stars, man would have looked up into a black, empty void, an expanse of, of the world, and say, you know what? There is nothing there after all. But you see, we're going to read in the New Testament that they're without excuse because God is, first of all, telling, constantly witnessing, constantly telling. The sun, the moon, the stars are declaring telling, bubbling forth, God. Their voice is not heard. And yet, if their voice is not heard, how do they do the telling? Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. What do you have, uh, Sean, for the line? Their line has gone throughout the earth. Pardon? Very good. What do you have? Voice, message. So their line, their voice, their message, and that's what it means, their sound or their, 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 their message. Their, uh, their message, that is the sun, the moon, the stars, has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. So there's no place where man can say, I don't know if there's a God. In other words, they're without excuse. There's nowhere that they can say it because it goes to the four corners of the earth. This constant babbling forth, this constant voice, this sound that goes out is in present tense. It never ends. Every day, day after day, week after week, year after year, I should have said month after month, year after year, eon after eon, God has been proclaiming his handiwork by the mere fact of the stars, the moon, and the sun, the mountains, the oceans. And David didn't have the view that you had today of seeing the heavens by NASA uh, or an animation of what it looks like out there because we've put men into space. They don't have the they don't have the visions that we have. And yet, look what they declared. Look what David wrote. We don't write these today because we're not looking up. We're not declaring God. God is irrelevant to today's society. That's why you're relevant because of the second thing that, the word, that this word does. All right, so their message has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world and in them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of the chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course, as we saw in the video. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. 
And therefore, what it's saying is that the sun, it used to be Hebrew custom that when a man was going to get married, because it's compared to a bridegroom, he would adorn himself, his mother and his father, his uncles and his aunts would all be there, and they would, they would add special things to his cloak, okay? And he would, he would put an extra colorful sash around his waist. And then he'd walk through town with his mother, his father, his uncles, and his aunts, and his cousins, and some of them were jumping around and all this stuff, the kids. And what is he doing? The bridegroom is going to claim his bride. He's going to her house. And he's going to take her hand. And she will have her mother and father and uncles and aunts there. That was, that was the, the tradition. And he would go and he would get her. And then they would all rejoice together at a party, outdoor uh, uh, party, and, and eat and, and be filled and, and, and possibly say the Torah. And of course, they would start their marriage. What a, what a scene. And that's what God does with the sun. The sun is coming forth. And every day, do you ever get up and say, I wonder if I'll be able to go north uh, uh, this morning. Will the, sun, will the sun be rising? God is so faithful that the sun comes up in the east that sets in the west. Now, I want us to turn to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14. Why has God done this? What is the purpose of this information to be indulged, uh, indulged, of a constant witness. Well, I can't get to, uh, I just looked at my watch, and I can't get to everything I want. This is really based, uh, uh, set up for a seminar, uh, rather than one Sunday, and I'm trying to do the best I can here, but like I said, you got Leah, not Rachel. Uh, turn to Exodus 14. Here's, here's the context, okay? The Hebrews have been in Egypt for 430 years. They entered way back with Jacob, 70 souls, and they are emerging with about 3 million. Okay? Uh, Joseph, Jacob's seemingly lost son, is co-regent with, with this pharaoh back in, I think it's Exodus, I think it would be, well, uh, Genesis 49, I mean. I think it's there, 46, somewhere around there. But uh, Joseph is co-regent. And... Uh, the Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph that he welcomes Jacob and the 69 other people, Jews, into the land. And not only does he welcome them, because there's a famine in Israel, he says, give them the best of the land, because they're sheep herders. They're, they're farmers. And so he says he gives them the land of Goshen. Now, I remember black and white TV and... and uh, Old man McCoy, the real McCoys, you've never seen him, but it was black and white. And he'd say, take his hat off and slap his leg, land of Goshen, he'd say, land of Goshen. What's that mean? It means, boy, do I have something to tell The best of the best, land of Goshen, land of Goshen. And that's where the Hebrews settled, you see. But now, here in Exodus 14, what we see, it's not 70 people going in. We see about 3 million people coming out. And they've cried out to their Lord because they're in slavery. And they've been through a succession of pharaohs. And each one has gotten worse than the one before. Till finally, God is going to act. 
What is the whole purpose of God enslaving his people? Look at verse uh, 14.4. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. In your version it says glory, I believe. What is the purpose of glory? What is the chief end of man? You've been through the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Confession. What is confession number one? The chief end of man. Don't look it up on your phone. Just What? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. To enjoy him forever. Please don't take offense at what I'm going to say next, all right? But you're all an aberration. Every one of you is abnormal. Now when I point my finger, I got three pointing back at me, so that's me too. I'm abnormal. Ask my wife. We're not innocent where Adam walked in the cool of the garden by day with God. We're sinners. And the purpose of God making Adam was to be glorified by his creation. What was the earth like? Well, what was the Garden of Eden like? What, 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 there was no snakes. Or if there was snakes, they weren't as they are now. Because that was one of the curses upon the snake, that you'll eat dust the rest of your life. What was that like? See, Adam was not so different from us in his physical form. Well, he didn't have a belly button. But Adam... Adam sinned, and therefore, we are sinners because of Adam. And had we been there, we would have sinned. Adam made a perfect place, a perfect man, for a perfect reason. And yet today, you are an out-of-focus, fuzzy copy of the man Adam. So God shows his glory. He's going to show his glory in verse 4. Look at uh, verse, uh, ver verse 17. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be... What? What does it say? Pardon? I will be glorified, or I will... Read, read say again. Okay. I will get glory. Okay, mine says honored. The whole purpose of glory is to honor the one that's being glorified. We're to honor God in our glorification. And then the other verse, uh, 18. Then Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am glorified or honored through Pharaoh, though his chariots, through his chariots and his horsemen. It's a very interesting passage. Uh, I presented it once before from a pulpit, but uh, Egypt is the superpower of its day. It is, it is, it is a super-duper power. Later would become Assyria, then Babylon, then Rome, uh, Greek, then Rome, and then you would have uh, France and England and today the USA. 
How do you say his name? Alexis de Tocqueville? What was his first name? Alex de Tocqueville? Something like that? All right. During the Revolutionary War, he traveled throughout the country. He was from France, I believe. And uh, he was, what was he amazed at? He was amazed at the number of churches and the fiery oratory, he says. I read some of his documents. The fiery oratory of men who honored God. And then he says, it dawned upon me that America, fledgling as it was, beat the superpower of its world, the mightiest army ever. You think they did, we did that alone? The English Redcoats. He said, America is great because America is good. Today we're losing our greatness. And we're not really good anymore. LGBTQ, BLTs, uh, we have uh, transgenderism. We're taking statues down, canceling culture, and we're killing babies once they're born. We're not good anymore. Do you notice our greatness has slipped? We don't have a Billy Graham anymore to prick our hearts and cause us to go down and seek the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. We don't have that anymore. Because he's with her. there's a famine that he sent, and it's a famine of his word. It's a famine not of food, of water. It's of his word. We used to have all these great evangelists, Billy Sunday, and, and, and of course, uh, uh, Billy Graham, and other men, George Whitfield, that's been taken away from us. So, I want us to look quickly at... Uh, at 2 Kings, chapter 21, I believe it is. Whew. 2 Kings, chapter 21. <clears throat> 20, yeah, 21. Okay, so... Manasseh is the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king that was righteous before God. Later on in his life, he became a little softy and uh, uh, he started to stray. But basically, Hezekiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Okay? His son now is Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Hezbozabah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of evil. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he entered, he erected altars for Baal and made an Ashereth as Ahab the king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the heavens, all the host of heaven, and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord. Where Jehovah said of the, of, of the temple that Solomon built, he said, there is where I will place my great name. And the place where Jehovah declared himself, this is my temple, Manasseh puts up visions of naked men and women, is what it amounts to. 
He erected altars for Baal and made an Ashereth as Ahab did. And worshipped. What's he worship? The host of heaven. Creation. We have Manassas today in society with climate change calling God's creation Mother Nature. And if you look into it, it gets pretty deep into philosophy of what they believe. I had all this to read to you, and I'm looking now at her time, so it's not going to be possible. Nevertheless, <coughs> would you please turn to, uh, to Romans? Look at chapter 1, starting with verse 18. I know it's a classic passage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What does suppress mean? Pardon? Say again. Put down. Or a little bit more accurately, it's a they use a pictiform, and it's a muscled Greek guy with pecs and abs and good biceps, and he's holding something down. He's holding it down because it's trying to rise. He's holding the truth down. The truth is trying to rise, and he holds it down. And he holds it down for his own end. And of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, how did he do that? He made it evident to them through his general revelation. Verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sun makes its transit. The, 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 the moon shines at night and there's stars in the heavens and man looks up before the renaissance and understands there's a being there. My goodness, since the declaration of evolution in this country, we have to now teach intelligent design because they're not allowed to say God, the creator. And here's what else we see. Let me continue reading. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Creation. So that they are without what? Excuse. God has condemned the very man who disbelieves, who should have said, I want to seek him out, because God says in two places, I'm not hard to find. He says to the Jew in uh, Deuteronomy uh, uh, 17, I believe it is, that what nation is so, is so great that has the word near us? We don't have to go to heaven to get it. We don't have to cross a sea to get it. It's near us because God was near them. And he put it on tablets where they could read it. So that's what's so evident. So, go to uh, Romans chapter 10. No, no. Go to chapter 9. 
and go to verse 14. And Paul had this very section of Deuteronomy and this very section of Exodus in mind when he writes these words. What shall we say then? Verse 14. There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Talking about Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. I will have compassion on them that I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man, get that, on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and here's where he almost makes a direct quote, for this very purpose I raised you up, Pharaoh. I gave you a hardened heart and would not let you believe, Pharaoh. Why, God? To demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed like his witness in general revelation, like the sun does and the moon and the stars. Man is without excuse if he doesn't at least seek something and God will let lead that man to him. Throughout the whole earth, so then his mercy so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he, whom he uh, desires. What we learn from this is both Moses and Pharaoh were wicked men. Both were murderers. Moses murdered, ran away from Pharaoh from the hand of the law on the backside of the desert. Pharaoh was after him, but Pharaoh murdered too. Moses and Pharaoh were wicked sinners, even murderers, and equally worthy of God's wrath and eternal punishment. But Moses received mercy, while Pharaoh received God's judgment. Was God unfair to him because he hardened his heart? It doesn't mean that God actively created unbelief in some and belief in others. Or, I, I'm sorry, in some, uh, or evil in Pharaoh. All he did, God, was withdraw his divine influence that ordinarily acted as a restraint to sin and allowed Pharaoh's wicked heart to pursue its own path. So therefore, Pharaoh is guilty of his own sin. All right, so I have to finish. When we read the next uh, uh, verses 7 through 14. David, would you read that nice and loud? People, you can take a pen and draw a line between verse 6 and 7. And verses 1 through 6 is the general revelation of God. And it condemns all men. Because its voice goes out to the utter parts of the earth and declares, I am here. I am the creator. And there's one name given in verses 1 through 6. God. And it's the short form of the word in Genesis 1, Elohim. The powerful divine creator God. How many names and what name do you see in the last eight verses? 7 through 14. How many times? What name do you see? Lord. Actually, what you see is Yahweh. It's a transgrammaton. 
uh, it's, it's, it's Lord or Jehovah is Latinized Yahweh. And that is a personal name, a covenant name given on it to, from God to an individual. The name in verses 1 through 6 is God the creator, the designer, the all-powerful one. And it's general revelation, 1 through 6. Verses 7 through 14 are specific, special revelation on a person-to-person basis. You cannot get saved in the first six verses. You can only wonder. But in the last eight verses, you can get saved by the Word of God. The format of this inspiration of this poem, those, that I, those things that I passed out to you, uh, that C.S. Lewis, this page here, I think you all have it, has the poem at the bottom. You have that one? Uh, talks about how great he considered the greatest psalm of all the psalms. And the one I just passed out to you, if you look at it, Psalm 19, it gives the name of the word. Law, there's law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, judgments. Those are four, those are six nouns, all right? And it's, it's Hebrew parallelism because in the next six things, the character of the word describes what the law is. And then you have the effect of the word. So you have nouns, law, testimony, commandment, precepts. And in the next column, you have adjectives describing what each one is. And then in the third column, you have the effect of that noun, of the word of God. And then the last is the target, what God designed it to do. Okay, well, there's so much more to be said, we're not going to say it other than for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe should not perish but have everlasting life. And that comes from the word of God. But they never read 7, 8, and 9. Today you read 7, 8, and 9 on your own, okay? 